As most of you know, my wife and I moved here in May uh, for this job. Before we moved, we had to sell our house in Stillwater. And when we had to sell our house in Stillwater, we got a new roof. And when we got this new roof, which is exactly what we wanted, right? When you sell a house, you want a new roof. Uh, when we got this new roof, they brought this big dumpster out and they put it in our driveway to throw all the shingles in. And once that got done changing the roof and, and put the new roof up there, we asked our realtor, we said, can we throw stuff in there? And she said, sure, it's your dumpster. You can throw whatever you want. So we just started purging everything. I mean, anything that we did not want to pack, that we haven't used, that we didn't want to lug around our store, we just threw it all in the dumpster. And so naturally, I'm trying to clean out, you know, a decade of electronics that I never use anymore. And in those electronics, I found this old laptop that I had. And I thought, you know, I don't need this laptop anymore. There's probably not anything on there I want. I'm just going to throw it out and get rid of it. There's probably a million pictures and that kind of stuff that I just, I don't want to deal with it. I just want to trash it. It's junk. So I threw the laptop in the dumpster. I went on with life. Well, not too long ago, I was driving down the road and I was thinking about stuff. You know, I was daydreaming and I was daydreaming about that book that I wanted to write. And I thought, you know, I've got my master's thesis on my computer and someday I want to turn that master's thesis into a book. And then it dawned on me that that master's thesis was on the laptop that I threw in the dumpster and I no longer have a digital copy of my master's thesis. A hundred pages of research thrown into the dumpster. I had something that I loved, something that I cared for, something that I put time and energy into that I just threw in the trash. What we see in this passage is that the earth is filled with something that God loves, that God cares for, that God wants to redeem and restore and use, and he is not just going to throw it in the trash. And that is people who are made in his image and creation that he created to glorify him. And even though sin had destroyed it and tarnished it and ruined it, God said, I am not going to throw this in the trash. I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to restore it. I'm going to do it through this covenant that I'm going to make with Noah. This covenant is the covenant that we call the common grace covenant. And what I want you to see this morning is that it's God's common grace that he extends to all of creation to preserve it and restore it. And his common grace points us to the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. So we're gonna look at three things this morning. We're gonna look at the covenant of common grace, the necessity of common grace, and the sign of common grace. Kids, I love art, I love pictures. So if you've always wanted to draw in this service, here's your chance, okay? I want you to draw for me your favorite scene, the mountains, the beach, the ballpark, whatever, and I want you to draw a rainbow over the top of it. Draw a rainbow so I can hang it up in my office, okay? First, let's look at the covenant of common grace. So last week, we we studied chapters six through eight, and like we said, the fall had corrupted everything in creation, and mankind was particularly sinful. It said that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God gave man up to his, to his uh, God gave creation over to its destruction. He flooded it and he blotted everything out except for Noah and his family and the animals that were on the ark with him. Right? But then God promised to never destroy the earth again, not because Noah was sinless, but because God had a plan and he had a purpose. And that purpose was redemption. 
And so what God is doing here is he's, he's going to promise to restrain his judgment and graciously preserve creation. He's going to restore it. Okay? So the first thing we see is that God restores man's purpose. In this covenant, God restores man's purpose. In verse 1 it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that language should sound familiar. Where do you see that language? You see that in Genesis 1, when God made Adam. He gave him this job. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Uh, Theologians call this the creation mandate. Okay, This, This certainly means have families, have children. That's probably the most direct application. But what it also means is to build civilizations, to build cultures, to build community. What God wants is for man who's created his image to use his time, his energy, his talents, his resources to spread God's image all over creation. And so no matter who you are, no matter where you are, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian or you're somewhere in between, because you're created in God's image, because he has given you this beautiful purpose, this beautiful job, right? You can be fruitful and multiply. You can fill your, fulfill your purpose on the earth. Right? Engineers can fulfill this purpose by designing chairs that you can sit in during worship or designing roads that are good for you to drive on. Teachers can fulfill this purpose by teaching people how to live and function in God's world. Parents can fulfill this role by, by creating a home of love and safety and security. Students can, can fulfill this job by uh, going to school and learning and, and living at home with their parents and making a place of love and joy. Artists and musicians can fulfill this creation mandate by, by creating art that captures beauty and truth and goodness. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, we can praise God. We can worship Him. We can serve Him by fulfilling this job, by being fruitful and multiplying, by fulfilling the creation mandate. So that's the first thing God does. He restores our purpose. And then He restores our position. Right? Notice in verses 2 and 3, it says that God uh, put man over the plants and over the animals. Again, going back to Genesis 1, right? All the, all the plants and animals are there to serve man. God wants, him to, God wants to provide everything that we need through the plants and the animals, right? But he also wants us to steward it. Right? Creation is there for man to steward. So, so Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are people who want to care for the earth, who love the earth because God is the earth. So they want to use earth's resources as best as they can. So God restores our purpose. God restores our position. And then God promises that he is going to create this stable world for us to live in. Right? He promises to preserve this world. He says that while earth remains, God will ensure that seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall never end as it did during the flood. And despite thousands of years of pandemics and natural disasters and and all kinds of other stuff, the sun came up, and the sun went down, and the seasons changed. And we all kind of experienced that last year, didn't we? We went through this, this cataclysmic pandemic that changed all of our lives, and it threw off all the, the safety and stability in our lives. But what happened every day? The sun came up, the sun went down. And what happened when we got through the summer? It went to fall. 
And then it went to winter. And then it went to spring. And the clock just kept on moving. Because God had promised that he was going to preserve all of creation. So theologians call this the covenant of common grace. But it's because it extends to all creatures in all of creation through all of time. Even though that we're sinful and broken and this world is sinful and broken, God has promised to be gracious with it, to preserve it, to transform it and to redeem it. This grace declares God's goodness and his God, God's glory. So when we, when we drive on a road that is, that is well-paved, we can praise God for it. When we go to class and we're learning or we're teaching, we can praise God for it. When we're working at home or working in the office, we can praise God and thank him for the grace to be able to do that. And Christians aren't the only ones that recognize this. Non-Christians recognize this as well. Albert Einstein, obviously one of the greatest scientific minds in our world, would have by no means claimed to be a Christian. But listen to what he says about creation. He says, human beings, vegetables, and cosmic dust we all dance to the mysterious tune intoned in the distance by an invisible player. He saw in creation God's handiwork. He saw the order and the stability and the glory of it. But why didn't he believe? We said the reason why I couldn't believe was because of the problem of pain and suffering in the world. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage is we see that the necessity of common grace because there is pain and suffering and brokenness in this world. There was only one righteous person on the planet at this time, and that was Noah. And the passage says that there was that God would never destroy the earth again because there was evil in his heart. Remember, we talked about evil being the opposite of good, evil being that which severs relationships and harms people. The pain and suffering exists in this world because it runs right through every human heart. Uh, most of you probably know this week that there was a whistleblower who blew the whistle on Facebook and, and said there's all kinds of stuff going on behind the scenes that, that people need to know about. And I don't want to get into all that. But there was one thing I thought was interesting. She said that, that what they figured out was that, that posts that generated anger got the most views. And so what they did is they created the algorithm so that more and more posts would show up that elicited anger. What does that say about our hearts that those are the posts that we're drawn to? It shows that the sin that was in Noah's heart is still in our hearts today. And so what God had to do is he had to create laws to protect the image of God. He had to put rules in place to protect us. That's why it says here in verse 6, if you look at 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God established this law to protect life. Because every person in here and every person out there, no matter what race, what class, uh, what age, what intellect, no matter what, we're all created in the image and likeness of God. And so we all have a dignity that cannot be taken away because of that. We're all designed for dignity. But sin has, has, has distorted that. I read an article this week about a, uh, a newspaper article called The Irony of Being Human. Uh, and it tells that this, this newspaper reporter told the story about a hotel room, about a hotel that one night had two totally different views of man. Uh, in one room, there was a woman who 
had left her family to pursue her lover, and then her lover left her, and then when she decided to leave, she wrote a note, and she said, don't cry for me, I'm not even human. Sin had so degraded her, she didn't even see herself as a human. Well, at the same time, downstairs, there was this new age religion that was having a meeting in the hotel room. And in the meeting, they were chanting, I am God, I am God, I am God. And the author said, the irony of being human is that two people in the same place could have such drastically different views of humankind. That's because sin has caused us to either deify ourselves or destroy ourselves. And what God's covenant here with Noah says is, no, every person in here has dignity and worth because they're made in the image of God. But we are not to elevate ourselves as God. Only he is God. But we're valuable because we're created in his image. But we're not the only things that are broken. Creation is broken as well. As it says over and over again, all creation was corrupt. All flesh was corrupt. Everything was broken. And if you go to the New Testament, you read in Romans 8, Paul says that creation is groaning. It's longing for the sons of God to be revealed. What's going on? Well, because God made Adam to rule over creation, whenever Adam sinned, this force called sin went into creation and destroyed everything. And so there's not harmony, there's not peace, there's not shalom the way creation is supposed to be. There's violence. Um, An author named Annie Dillard, who wrote a book called Pilgrim of Tinker Creek, captured this really well. Annie did not believe in a God. She just believed there was nature. And one day she was out observing that nature. She was observing all the beautiful, loving, wonderful aspect of nature she could. And while she was sitting there observing nature, she saw a fly bug suck the life out of a frog. And it startled her. And she realized that either, right, Mother Nature is a monster or humans are freaks because somehow we evolved out of nature with a conscience that believes that death is wrong. And so then in her book, Pilgrim of Tinker Creek, she wrote this. She said, evolution loves death more than it loves you and me. She saw the pain and suffering in creation. She said, she said something's wrong. Either this world is built around death or there's got to be something greater. And that led her down a path to pursuing God and believing that there was at least a creator. But that, that the brokenness of creation wasn't restored through the covenant with Noah. It was restrained. And so what God knew was at some point God was always going to have to restore creation. He's always going to have to redeem it. And the sign of the covenant points to that. And that's the last thing we see in this passage is this sign of common grace. Look back at verses 12 and 13. It says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So three times God tells Noah that he has made a covenant with him And then he's put his sign in the cloud, and that sign is a bow. Now we know, based on the context, that it's a rainbow. But in the Hebrew, it just says bow, as in a bow, an arrow, or a weapon. So what God is saying now is instead of the the rainbow being a symbol of war, or instead of this bow being a symbol of war, it is now a symbol of God's grace. 
It is a symbol of God's kindness. That he knows creation is sinful. But he's not going to destroy it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to renew it. He's going to restore it. And every time we see that rainbow, God wants us to remember his promise that he's not going to throw this thing out. He's not going to chunk it. He's going to redeem it. Uh, when the internet first kind of got going and got big, and when YouTube first got going, there was a video that went viral called the Double Rainbow Video. Anybody ever seen the Double Rainbow Video, right? There's this kind of like uh, guy walking through Yosemite Park, and there's clearly been a storm in Yosemite Park, and he notices that there's a rainbow, and he starts, he says, oh, the rainbow is so vivid, it's so beautiful. And then he realizes there's two a double rainbow. He goes, oh, it's a double rainbow. What does it mean? What does it mean? And his, his, his cry, his prayer turns into literally crying and weeping. He is so overcome by the beauty of this rainbow. Now, if he was so overcome by the beauty of that rainbow, how much more should we be overcome by the beauty of a rainbow? Every time we see it, God is declaring to us that I will preserve creation for my people. This home will always be here. It will never leave. It is a sign of God's goodness to us, to all of creation. But it's not just a sign of his common grace. It's a sign of his saving grace as well. You'll notice if the rainbow was a bow, if it was a war bow, Which way is the arrow pointing? Which way is the bow pointing? The bow's pointing up. The bow's pointing up because in the rainbow, God made a promise that he's never again going to judge the earth. He's never going to get again, going to point his war bow at the earth. He's going to point it at himself. He's going to take the judgment on himself. Despite uh, God's common grace, Noah's sin And our sin and the sin of all creation had to be paid for. God couldn't just leave it alone. There had to be atonement. And so what what Jesus did was, on the cross, Jesus took the sin of all creation and our sin onto himself. He took the judgment that we deserve onto himself so we could experience God's grace. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus gave his life for ours. And by faith in him, we not only experience this common grace every day, but we experience saving grace. Think about the sin in your life. Think about the darkness. What do you always have to have to have a rainbow? You gotta have a storm, right? You gotta have darkness. Where's the darkness in your life? Is it in your family? Is it in your uh, work? Is it in your health? Is it in your internet browsing? Where is it? On the backdrop of that darkness is God's promise of grace that if you come to Him and confess your sins, that He will forgive you in the name of Jesus that he has forgiven you in Christ and that you can be washed and renewed and be given a new life through the spirit just as Jesus was resurrected in the spirit. And then God adopts us into his family and he restores our dignity. He restores our dignity.
and he gives us a son. Peter, what Peter does in this passage is fascinating. You know, Peter references the flood of Noah more than any other book. So right after he talks about Jesus paying for our sins, listen to what he says. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. He's talking about Noah, talking about the ark, talking about the flood. Then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter draws a parallel between the flood and the sign of Noah to our baptism. Our baptism is a sign of God's grace to us that we have been washed, that we've been cleansed, that judgment has been paid, that God has adopted us into his family, that we've been united to Jesus. And that even though we sit right here, right now, we actually truly, really, in a spiritual way, are ascended into heaven through the personal work of Jesus. Think about the darkness you were just thinking about a few seconds ago. Your your truer identity is that you are united to Christ. You are not defined by your darkness. You're defined by your baptism. Amen? And that is God's promise that he is always going to love you and care for you and provide for you. He's going to give you everything you need. He's going to give you everything you need. Uh, There's a movie called The Blind Side. Uh, It's got, it tells a true story. Uh, It's based on a true story about a pro football player. His name was Michael Orr. Well, Michael grew up on the streets, never knew where his next meal was going to come from. Eventually he befriended a family and that family took him in. They, they, they loved him as, his, as their own son. They cared for him. They provided for him. But Michael could never get over this feeling that he was always going to be missing something. That he was always going to go without a meal. And so what Michael would do was, when he would go to Taco Bell, he would get the tacos. He would get as much as he could. He would eat them. And then he would hoard. Whatever he did then, he would hoard them. And he would bring them home and put them in the fridge. So he was always hoarding tacos. All the time. And one day, he was getting tacos out of the refrigerator, and his dad came up to me and says, Michael, I own every Taco Bell in this town. You do not need to hoard the tacos. You are never going without tacos ever again. So what sin does in our lives is it brings this insecurity where we feel like we're never going to have what we need. And that insecurity brings this pain and this suffering and this anger into our hearts. And our baptism is a sign that we are never going to lack what we need. Just like that sign, the talk, every Taco Bell sign Michael could see in, in that town was a sign that his father was going to provide for him. Your baptism is a sign that your father is always going to provide for you. And one day, someday, he's going to eliminate all the pain and suffering in this world. Guess where else we see a rainbow? Revelation 4.3. John is swept up into a vision of the heavenlies. And this is what he says. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. There's a rainbow around the throne in heaven. God's promise to you is that your home, your ultimate home, is not here in a world of sin and suffering but in the new heavens and the new earth with your heavenly father. 
A world that has been restored and redeemed and that is fit for God's children. He's not going to junk it. He's not going to junk you. He's going to turn it into something beautiful. This summer, my wife took our kids to uh, the City Museum in St. Louis. If you've never been there, I highly recommend it. Yeah, right? If you need a place to take your kids on vacation, take them to St. Louis, take them to the City Museum. Uh, the City Museum was created by Bob and Gail Cassily, and it was a 10-story, 600,000-square-foot shoe factory. Bob had a vision to take this shoe factory and restore it and renew it. So what they began doing was collecting broken pieces of junk from all around different cities all over the world. They brought it to the museum and they turned it into a city within a city. They got Ferris wheels, buses. Uh, They got uh, gigantic dinosaurs, a planetarium, a a gigantic praying mantis, an organ built in 1925. And they transformed this stuff into miles and miles of tunnels and slides and caves and caverns and bridges and climbers so that kids, old and young, could go in there and experience the joys of God's creation. They had a vision for restoring creation, not just destroying it. That's what God's vision is for our creation. as has a vision for restoring it and redeeming it so that we can live in it and experience His goodness and grace. Let's pray that God would help us do that every day by His Spirit. Please pray with me.